Welcome to Cato Audio for March 2013. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, David Bowes lays out foundations of libertarian thinking. Bradley Smith evaluates the three years since the Citizens United decision. Justin Logan discusses the rise of China. Neil McCluskey talks social cohesion in public schools. And author Craig Whitney and attorney Alan Gora discuss the Second Amendment since the tragedy at Newtown, Connecticut. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. Following the financial collapse that occurred uh, through from 2007 all the way through 2009, uh, Dodd-Frank was Congress's answer to the problem. And uh, one of the chief concerns that it was supposed to have addressed was issues of too big to fail, how banks finance themselves, and whether or not the taxpayer would be asked to bail them out on a regular basis. To talk about that issue today and what Dodd-Frank holds for the future Two representatives of the Financial Regulation Studies Department at the Cato Institute, Mark Calabria and Louise Bennett, director and associate director of that department, respectively. Welcome. Thank you. So uh, just to get started, Louise, one of the things that you focused on really is the the costs that Dodd-Frank imposes on the private sector. This was uh, supposed to be a regulation that would make things better. So what kind of costs are we looking at to get what the president and others hope this legislation will achieve? I think just uh, scaling back a little bit, one of the big issues with Dodd-Frank, one of the big things that it was meant to address was it was meant to enhance stability in the financial sector. And obviously, there's always a certain amount of uncertainty in the market. But the problem is that when you have regulatory uncertainty, you have a big problem. You know, it's interesting when uh, Milton Friedman, he wrote an op-ed many, many years ago when Ronald Reagan came into power. And he said, when you have regulations, the key thing with regulations and a regulatory environment is that it needs to be clear, consistent, and that the rules and regulations need to be applicable and easily identifiable. And you need a clear chain of command. And I think the interesting thing with Dodd-Frank is that it represents a departure from that principle. Because what Dodd-Frank really is, is... Well, first of all, the act itself is just, is you know, it's just a framework. It's a framework of a new kind of regulatory regime that is coming into power. And then it gives an enormous amount of discretion to the various regulatory bodies. And they need to go through and look at how they implement it. And they're, and they're given all of this power to kind of impose, you know, regulations on the industry. The problem is within the act, it's not clear which agencies have power over certain issues, where the ultimate backstop. So you're having a number of agencies releasing rules on the same topic. The rules are frequently contradictory. There are issues on power and enforcement. And frankly, you know, the rules themselves are actually not really rules. They're more just kind of discretionary standards. So it's very hard for the private sector market participants to go ahead and look through those rules and understand how they're applicable to the business. And this is very costly. As Richard Epstein has pointed out, rules should accommodate a large volume of transactions. It seems that this is not the case. Mark Calabria? That's an important point, the uncertainty. And I do want to emphasize that so much of Dodd-Frank really is a delegation to regulators. Dodd-Frank requires almost 400 rulemakings. Only about a third of them have actually been anywhere near completion. And so there are a number of important questions that if you want to run a business or you want to get a loan, that simply aren't answered yet. And they won't be answered for at least another year, maybe two. So certainly a very um, 
vague environment that we're in. But ultimately, you know, there's certainly been some initial analyses of the act in various parts in terms of costs for both consumers and businesses. And I think one of the things we're going to see come out of this act is just a higher cost of credit, particularly on the consumer side. So to see the ability to borrow, the ability to start a business is going to be greatly constrained going forward. And obviously, that's going to have direct impact on the ability of businesses to invest. I mean, take one example, for instance, in the derivatives area. Derivatives were focused on so much as part of the crisis, and let's set aside the question of what kind of role they did play. One of the provisions of Dodd-Frank pushes what are called end users, essentially the non-financial companies. You could think about you know, Boeing trying to hedge its uh, fuel costs or Cargill trying to hedge commodity costs. These companies are not going to have to put up a margin. They're going to have to put up money that they would otherwise invest in their company are going to have to have it set aside to protect those positions. And traditionally, it's been really based on your credit rating. If you are a well-run AAA company, you usually have not had to commit that level of margin. So again, we're putting a lot of cash on the sidelines that would otherwise be used to invest in the economy and grow the economy that will not happen otherwise. Okay. Well, I'll just throw this out here. For a long time, the financial system has, and Louise, you and I have discussed this in brief, has moved away from risk assessment by risk assessment mm-hmm. and into this category of risk assessment by definition. That is delegating to these quasi-government entities the assessments of risk, be it Basel, be it credit rating agencies. And Dodd-Frank, how does it deal essentially with that problem? It doesn't at all. In fact, it enhances it. I think, you know, the Basel rules obviously built into the Dodd-Frank legislation through some of the capital standards provisions. There is no real attempt to deal with sort of risk on a global level in the Act. And it really is, there's sort of this, I would call it a theme running through the Act where it's kind of like, well, we're not really sure when the next crisis will come from. So we're just going to throw everything at it and give regulators maximum discretion at any point to do whatever it is that they want to do. The problem is you cannot fight complexity with complexity. You know, the financial system is enormously complex, but creating more uncertainty in the regulatory framework doesn't address the problem of complexity. And the other major problem, and I just step back a little bit, is that regulators are being given the opportunity to oversee products and services that they've had no historical understanding of or dealing with. And they're expected to come up with rules pertaining to these industries that they've never dealt with before. And so that's putting them in an enormously difficult position. And I think the market in an enormously difficult position, because a lot of the rules that they're coming out with are, in fact, not a applicable to the entities that they're meant to be. And this really is a a theme of Dodd-Frank, which is the Dodd-Frank narrative of the crisis, is that the only problem was that regulators lacked tools, lacked discretion, you know, to resolve firms or to stop practices. And of course, you know, this is all very false. But again, it does not take the approach of trying to have certainty in the process over, for instance, you know, who will be rescued, who will not be rescued, who will take losses, who will not be take losses, what products will be approved ahead of time, what will not. And so there really is a, a tremendous amount of uncertainty in this. And again, it sends to me the wrong signal to the marketplace. Uh, And of course, you know, as we have written and argued elsewhere, too big to fail is still very much part of the landscape. And that in itself is going to distort and reduce economic growth by having resources flow to those too big to fail firms rather than having them flow to their most highest and valued use in the economy. When I talked uh, for a podcast with Michael Munger about the subject of too big to fail and sort of uh, trying to assess how to deal with that issue credibly, it seems a little like, you know, there are many countries around the world 
that would like to have nuclear weapons, if for no other reason, then they see how countries with nuclear weapons are treated by the rest of the world. And Dodd-Frank, of course, was supposed to address this issue of too big to fail, but it seems like firms have a very strong incentive now to become too big to fail because the rules are different. That's true to an extent. I think, first of all, just, you know, stepping back a little bit and looking at the concept of too big to fail, I think this was an idea and a theme that came in during the 2008 financial crisis. It was used as an excuse to bail out certain firms or to rescue certain firms at the expense of others. And so it's formed part of the narrative. But I don't believe personally that there really is an individual firm taken on its own that really is too big to fail. So it's kind of the systemic idea and it's codified in the act, but whether it in fact exists in reality or not is a separate question. But on your point, I think, yes, there is definitely, there are certain benefits of being perceived as being too big to fail. And there is a definite encouragement on the part of certain firms to get larger in an environment where that benefit exists. And that's a point worth emphasizing. I mean, of course, too big to fail is somewhat uh, like obscenity. You know it when you see it, and there doesn't seem to be an objective standard. But, you know, in an attempt to try to argue, I mean, to me, what would be a good measure of too big to fail would be, do these firms have a funding advantage over their rivals? And if you look before the bailouts, or you look before 2008, with the exception of, say, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, the largest firms generally did not have a funding advantage over the next largest tier of firms. Now, when the bailout started, you saw that funding advantage come into play. Since Dodd-Frank, to the credit maybe, Dodd-Frank could accredit other factors in the marketplace, some of that funding advantage has gone away, but much of it still remains. So I think the data suggests to me that too big to fail was more an outcome of the crisis, an outcome of Dodd-Frank, than it was a cause of the crisis. I think it's also important worth noting that you know, there is this fundamental tension, I think, with the too big to fail institutions in that, yes, there is this perception that you're going to be bailed out so you have lower funding costs, but there's also, you know, I mean, you're certainly going to get additional regulation, but even worse, you're going to get additional asks from the political system. You know, when you look at like the, the these mortgage settlements or many of the other things that happen, you know, I think it's pretty much a truism that Washington does not give you something without coming back and wanting something for it. And you really do see this um, joining of the in the political process of the largest banks and the government. I would argue it's hard to find a dividing line really between the Federal Reserve and, and much of the financial system. And again, it's a, you know, we're going to give you something and we're going to get something out of it and you're going to distribute to favored constituencies if you want to be able to be bailed out next time. The financial crisis gave us perhaps a new perspective on the idea of contagion, how these problems spread from bank to bank in a free market where you do not have a government pushing investments here or there. Banks, as you point out, Louise, don't really make the same mistakes. They make a lot of mistakes, but they often make different mistakes. And so we had in some some ways a new kind of contagion in this financial crisis. Did How did Dodd-Frank deal with that? Well, not really, again, not really at all. I mean, I think, and Mark can speak to this as well, there's definitely an institutional favoring of certain types of 
capital, for example, included in the Basel III standards and in the CCAR process and some of the other processes as well that are part of Dodd-Frank, this drive of private capital into, for example, what we would call riskless, and I say that you know in inverted commas, but riskless assets such as sovereign bonds, for example. Now, obviously, we've seen what's happening in Europe. There's, I don't think anybody in the market who genuinely believes that a sovereign bond is a riskless asset. But there is this tendency to give preference to certain types of capital, certain types of products. And what's interesting is that is a corollary to what was happening pre-2008, because we would have seen a lot of preference given to mortgage-backed securities and mortgage-related products, you know, regulatory preferential treatment. And that obviously encouraged banks. It wasn't the sole reason for them holding it, but it encouraged them to hold it. I think, you know, banks will make mistakes and individual banks will make mistakes. Sometimes they'll be large, sometimes they'll be small, sometimes they'll be life-threatening, sometimes they won't. But when an individual bank makes a large mistake, you know, they learn from it, the market learns from it, and, you know, things tend to carry on. When you've got everybody in the same situation or investing in the same kinds of assets, it's not so much a contagion as in, you know, you invest in something and therefore, you know, and you go down, therefore I'm going to go down because I'm exposed to you. It's contagion because the market is worried that what the products or assets that are on people's balance sheets are not Or everybody responds to a common shock. I mean, I would define it one way. Certainly one of the objectives of financial reform should have been to reduce the correlation of failure across firms. And that is so to make it less likely that firm A fails that firm B fails. Now, there's two separate ways that this is often thought of happening. The one is a sort of domino that A owes B money, A goes bankrupt, they can't pay B, therefore B goes bankrupt. There's pretty good body of evidence that says that really doesn't happen that often or ever. And so this sort of domino effect is really more a myth or a theory than it is reality. Now, the other part is was Louise was getting at is this sort of everybody reacts to a common shock in the same way. So, you know, housing prices fall 30 percent. So anybody, obviously, who holds mortgages in that environment is going to be in a problem. Now, one of, I think, the really big to me tragically dangerous flaws of Dodd-Frank is the perception that we have to close regulatory gaps, that institutions both across, not just banks, but you know, hedge funds, insurance companies and such, and also by country, you know, whether it's the US, UK, areas of the EU, all have to be regulated the same. And so there is this push for uniformity, whereas you know, Finance 101 tells you you have a much safer portfolio if you have a diversity of assets in it. So I do worry that instead of actually making it less likely that both firm and AB fail, what Dodd-Frank is going to achieve is that the probability that A fails is highly related to the probability that B fails, not because of this domino contagion, but because they look the same. And they respond to the same shocks the same way. You know, again, it might sound a bit simplistic, but we need to encourage or rather allow diversity in our financial system. And again, trying to regulate everybody the same way, trying to turn a hedge fund into a bank is a tragic mistake. Well, it seems uh, with Dodd-Frank that we're moving in the same direction with the regulations that we've had over the past 40 years or so in financial markets, and that is a continued move away from individual assessments by those people who are most invested in the outcomes 
with respect to their institutions, the companies they they own. Like, but it, how can we how can we get away from that? Certainly, the last you know at least hundred years, if not more, of financial regulation has been a process of the substitution of regulation for market discipline. And to me, I think this is one of the biggest flaws. And of course, let's put something aside. You know, one of the critiques to me, one of the straw men of financial regulation is this sort of thought of self-regulation. It's not about self-regulation. You know, I don't trust the CEO of Citibank to regulate himself. What I do trust is those creditors who have lent Citi trillions of dollars, who have real money on the line to monitor those institutions. And so let's keep in mind 90 plus percent of the funding of any financial institution is going to be debt. And one of the things we repeatedly did during the financial crisis and one of the things that I believe is embedded in Dodd-Frank is this protection of creditors. And again, it's not a compliment. I think the ability to say, well, let's have market discipline and let's have regulators, it doesn't work that way. The more the regulators come in there, the more it sends the signal to market participants, don't worry, we got you covered. So there really is a reduction in that market discipline. And of course, the argument could be, well, you know, all of our regulators are these smart, highly paid Harvard guys and they'll get it right. Well, they don't have the incentive to get it right. No regulator, no major regulator has been fired because of the crisis. And as I like to point out, one of the regulators who probably did the absolute worst, the New York Fed, their president, we gave a promotion. It made him treasury secretary, despite what was an atrocious regulatory record by any objective standard. One of the other interesting themes, and we touched on this earlier, was really this substitution of regulation by quasi-regulators. I mean, and certainly this has long been the case in the securities world. We have these things called SROs, self-regulatory organizations like FINRA that, that aren't really government, but they aren't really private. And of course, one of the areas we did see that played a very key role in the financial crisis were the rating agencies. And oddly enough, I mean, one of the best things in Dodd-Frank is – maybe one of the few good things in Dodd-Frank is the direction for the regulators to be less reliant on the rating agencies. Now, let me also add, I'm absolutely convinced that this will be the thing that will not be implemented in Dodd-Frank. The regulators do not want to, want to move away from the current system that makes their life easy. They go check a box and look at the rating and they've done their job. But this really does undermine the due diligence in the system undermines competition. You've ended up in this very concentrated system with the rating agencies where they really have no incentive to actually work that hard. They're not really – I don't think uh, – you know, for instance, we've had a recent Department of Justice suing S&P. I think the notion that just because S&P had a very strong market power position which encouraged them to sort of be relaxed if not – and didn't do any due diligence, that's certainly not fraud or negligence. But again, it's the outcome – of the system you have. Monopolists are almost by definition always lazy. Yeah, I think I'd agree with Mark on that point. I think there is a tendency in Dodd-Frank to kind of move or try to move the market away from this over-reliance on, on ratings. The problem is that there's just no, as he said, there's no push on the part of regulators or the private sector to move away from the system because it's, you know, it's worked where they can move things quickly through the system, give products, you know, ratings that may or may not, in fact, be related to the underlying value. And it's stopped, you know, it's, it's stopped people that are actually working in the market being able to evaluate the products that they're, you know, and it stopped them doing due diligence on what they're actually holding in their portfolio. So it's a big issue. And it was clearly directly related to the crisis. But again, it's kind of the substitution of a regulation for market discipline. Is there a way to unwind this process then? I mean, the question for me at this point is we have all this delegation of essentially assessment that 
individual market participants ought to be doing. Is there a way to unwind that? I mean, they've tried to do it with uh, credit rating agencies moving away from that, but it doesn't seem like the regulations that, uh, well, at least the, the proposed regulations that I've seen, actually get to that point. If I can add, I mean, I, you know, I say this as someone who spent seven years as a, a staffer on a Senate Banking Committee. You know, how much delegation and discretion that Congress gives the regulators is completely up to Congress. You know, Dodd and Frank and company chose not to make decisions. They certainly have the ability within their power to make those decisions within statute. I mean, most of the time, regulations exist because either Congress has said, you will issue a regulation on this topic, or Congress leaves absent all the details that matter and tell the regulators to do something on the agency. Good legislation actually shouldn't need any regulation. It should just be crystal clear what you're trying to achieve. So again, the reason we're in this situation today, the reason that we have almost 400 rulemakings under Dodd-Frank is because almost every single important decision in Dodd-Frank was punted by Congress, failing to do its responsibilities, delegating massive amounts of legislative authority to the regulators. So if I understand uh, what you're saying correctly, then simply shorter clearer legislation that does not delegate regulatory authority. I mean, mean, of course, you know, you have to remove the discretion that's in the statute to begin with. You know, I think it's appropriate on a different note to reflect upon, you know, the recent passing of of Nobel laureate Jim Buchanan. The problem with Dodd-Frank is it lives in a world of imaginary regulators and legislators who simply don't exist. It's as if there is no public choice insight on what the incentives and behavior of regulators is actually going to be. And again, that's why you get flawed outcomes because you've got a flawed structure that is is utopian in a sense. Yeah, I think that's right. And the other problem, you know, obviously Congress will say, well, this is an enormously complex area. We cannot possibly make clear rules dealing with this because we can't possibly get our head around all of the issues. But then you shouldn't have a statute. If you don't know enough about the area to to write a statute that's clear and that has a clear authority and that has, you know, clear outcomes from moving from that legislation, you probably shouldn't be in that area at all. And that's really the fundamental problem, you know, and and the same thing is happening at the level of the regulatory agencies, you know, where they're looking at all of these rules that they need to pass. They're not sure how it impacts the market, but they're under time pressure to produce something. So they come out with these rules that are really more guidance than rules. and, And so it's creating a lot of uncertainty in the market. And I think it's acting as a little bit of a wet blanket on the market, frankly, because banks are not sure if they're going to be able to do certain types of trading activities. If they are, are they loopholes? Are there ways around? And again, it gives preference to larger players because they're more able to game the system. Okay, we're going to leave it there. Louise Bennett, Mark Calabria of the Financial Regulation Studies Department at the Cato Institute. You can read more of their work at our website, cato.org. Libertarians disagree on the origins of individual rights. God, human nature, and the study of history animate many ideas on the subject. But libertarians agree that our rights do not come from a government. That's one element underlying the classical liberal tradition. Cato Executive Vice President David Bowes detailed other elements at a Cato Capitol Hill briefing in January. I want to take a minute just to discuss three key ideas that I think are the classical liberal or libertarian perspective and that underlie the kinds of policy ideas that scholars at the Cato Institute usually talk about. The first one is individual rights. Now, 
Classical liberals can disagree on what the source of individual rights is. Some think our rights come from God, some think from human nature, some think from a study of history. One thing I think we all agree on is they don't come from government. They don't come from a king or a parliament or even a constitution. They are imprescriptible, which means they are not prescribed by any human agent. They are rights we have as human beings that are protected by and guaranteed by the Constitution, but not granted us by the Constitution. And people get that wrong sometimes, I think. They say, the Constitution grants me my right to free speech. No, the Constitution protects your right to free speech. And I think that's an important distinction. Second idea is spontaneous order. And if you've taken a political theory class, you know the difference between positive and normative theory. So you might say that individual rights is the normative theory. It says what things ought to be. Spontaneous order is a positive theory. It just says what things are. There's no need to believe in individual rights or anything to recognize the fact in the world of spontaneous order. To most of us, most of the order in the world seems planned. Took a lot of planning to organize this event today. Took a lot of planning to organize the C-SPAN network. It takes a lot of planning to build automobiles, to create airlines. All of the kinds of things that we see in the world. Why is there food in the groceries every day? You think that must be planned. Somebody must plan it. But in fact, the most important kinds of order in society are not planned. They are way beyond the, the ability of any person or group of people to plan. And that's not just a point about the economy. Think about language. Nobody planned the English language. The English language arose spontaneously. It evolved, just like the French language, the Russian language. There are a few languages like Esperanto that have two things in common. They actually were designed by human beings. They were planned, and no one speaks them. All the languages that people actually speak are examples of spontaneous order. Hayek wrote about the sort of alternative view to the spontaneous order, which was the fatal conceit, the idea that experts can direct resources more efficiently than can millions of independent decision makers. And we saw that most strikingly in the communist world, where there was this idea that committees and Soviets, as they were called, could plan something more efficient than the chaos of the free marketplace. But we also see it here at home. We see back in the Clinton administration, they brought in Ira Magaziner, and he was going to organize task forces to organize the entire economy and decide what goods and services we would need 20 years hence so that it could be planned to create them. Hillary Clinton came up with a, a very complicated health care plan, which eventually ended up, of course, more or less being passed 20 years later by the Obama administration. The Obama administration also believes that its experts know that what we need in terms of energy is green energy. So we're going to channel a lot of resources to green energy companies. But it's not just Democrats who do this sort of thing. I was writing this morning about how the state of Virginia has been trying to centrally plan the love lives of Virginians for a hundred years. They tried to keep the uh, mentally feeble from 
reproducing. They tried to keep people of different races from marrying. Now they try to keep people of the same sex from marrying. And in all of these cases, it really is. We experts know better than these people who should marry, who should love, how people should live. We've got a government now that subsidizes marriage for some people and bans it for others. That is the fatal conceit. That is central planning, thinking that you can centrally plan love. Okay, so we have individual rights, we have spontaneous order, and then the third key element is limited government, which is what protects individual rights and the spontaneous order. We always say at Cato, a government of delegated, enumerated, and thus limited powers. We have our rights. We delegated the protection of them to a government. In the document, the Constitution, we enumerated what powers we were delegating to the government, and by so enumerating them, we limited them. Because if it isn't in the Constitution, the government can't do it, which would allow most of you to go home because there would be no legislation left to do. But there are a few things actually delegated to the federal government, and they should do those things. Government is essential to a free society, but it should be limited. The Citizens United Supreme Court case opened up political speech, but how much has actually changed? Bradley Smith is a former federal election commissioner and head of the Center for Competitive Politics. He explored the changes since Citizens United at a Cato Institute conference in January. Now, the fact is, these cases did not change nearly so much as some people think, or as has sometimes been led to believe. For example, prior to Citizens United, groups that we then called 527s could run ads pretty much any time prior to 60 days before a general election or 30 days before a primary election, in which they could say almost anything they wanted about a candidate, as long as they didn't conclude by saying vote for this candidate or vote against his opponent or support, elect, defeat, words that were known as express advocacy. But they could say, you know, John Samples is a dirty, rotten scoundrel who steals Social Security checks from senior citizens' mailboxes and kicks small dogs. Call John Samples and tell him we don't need his agenda in Washington. And people would be like, oh, you know, that's very upsetting. You could do that before Citizens United outside of those windows near an election. And furthermore, after a decision and prior to 2003 when McCain-Feingold was passed, you could do those anytime. And after a decision in 2007 by the Supreme Court called Wisconsin Right to Life versus FEC, there was even more leeway to run those ads within the 30, 60-day window. The court took a very narrow view of what ads could be regulated even within that window. So corporations and unions could pay for these ads just as they could post-Citizens United. It's just that the nature of the ads was a little bit different. Also, these ads could be conducted and were conducted by nonprofit organizations, 501c4 and c6 organizations that we hear so much about in the current campaign. To give you an example, here's a real ad. This was run by the NAACP Voter Action Fund in 2000. It features a film, a grainy black and white film, showing images of a battered pickup truck and chains dragging an individual, a black man, to his death. And the voiceover comes on and says, I'm Renee Mullins, James Byrd's daughter. On June 7, 1998, in Texas, my father was killed. He was beaten, chained, and then dragged three miles to his death, all because he is black. So when Governor George W. Bush refused to support hate crime legislation, it was like my father was killed all over again. 
call George W. Bush and tell him to support hate crime legislation. We won't be dragged away from our future. And that ad was run in the week before the 2000 presidential election by a corporation, a nonprofit corporation. Is that a radical change from where we are post-Citizens United? Now, some people might say it'd be better if we didn't have that ad, but I just want to stress first that in certain ways, the change is not so great as some might think. Moreover, the change is not so great in a very important way, which is, I think, to the average citizen out there, he notices no difference in the campaign. Oh, there's a lot of news stories trying to rile them up and talking about, you know, the corporate plutocracy and so on because of Citizens United. And, but in fact, the campaign looked pretty much like any other campaign. There were lots and lots of TV ads, which we know people hate. They've, they said they hated that in every poll since I was born, right? Although we also know from political science research that TV ads are informative to voters and do help voters make decisions. There are lots and lots of negative ads, and we know that voters hate that, or at least they claim they hate that. They've said that in every poll ever taken since I was born. Although, in fact, they respond to negative TV ads, and it's shown that negative TV ads can, in fact, move voters considerably. They think the campaign is too long, and they've said that in every poll since I was born. You know, it's gotten too long in part because we have more primaries and because the fundraising rules mean candidates have to start raising money earlier because it's hard for candidates to raise money because they're still subject to low limits on what people can give to them, limits that haven't kept up with inflation. So all of these things to the average voter, while the voter complains about them, if we actually look, there's nothing new. They're just the things voters have always complained about. It's kind of like complaining about the weather or, you know, whatever else it is that people just talk about as a day-to-day thing. Now, having said that, Citizens United and the other cases that have flowed in its wake are, in fact, nonetheless important cases. I mean, first, I think it is an important difference to be able to do express advocacy ads, right? I think there is evidence that express advocacy ads can be more effective. Certainly, sometimes you might want to do an issue ad, as they're called, where you don't specifically ask people to vote for or against somebody. But sometimes, you know, you want to ex- do that express advocacy. So I think there's definitely pluses that can accrue there. I think also that in many ways express advocacy ads and the ability of corporations and unions, nonprofits to fund those creates a a somewhat more honest system. That is, people go out and they say what they mean. They don't say, call George Bush and tell him to support hate crimes legislation. (laughs) You know, he's, he's, that's not really an issue. You're trying to get people to vote against him in the election. And it has definitely increased the amount of spending in political campaigns. It's tough to get an exact amount and tease out cause and effect and so on, but I think it's probably safe to say that, you know, somewhere between 10 and 20 percent of the spending in the last election is probably due to the liberalization of campaign finance laws that has taken place in Citizens United and the other cases. If somebody wants to claim it's more or less, I'm probably not going to really argue unless they throw out some preposterous figure like 70 or or 80 percent or something like that. Whether you think this added spending is good or bad depends a lot on your take. Again, there's good information that higher spending can lead and usually does lead to a more informed and better informed electorate, that it can be used to depress voter turnout, but it can also be used to increase voter turnout. And certainly in the two elections we've had under Citizens United in 2010 and 2012, turnout has really not been a problem. Turnout has been pretty good for both the midterm in 2010 and the general election in 2012. The other thing that we often get 
is this idea that there's all this now non-disclosed or undisclosed spending, or the term that at some point the group seemed to agree upon was dark money. Suddenly last summer that appeared to be the term that all of the, the liberal reform organizations and the press were using. So I assume they had a conference somewhere and they got together and they decided they would call it dark money and they'd probably focus groups that and, and tested it. Of course, that's a misleading nomer in and of itself because when they say that these ads are undisclosed, every political ad says who paid for it. It's in every political ad. It's the law, right? So what they really mean to say is we don't know enough about these groups or we don't know as much about these groups as we would actually like to know. They are disclosed. We just wish we knew more about them. Now, if you take, for example, the Chamber of Commerce, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, a big spender, I'm not sure that comes into play much. I mean, you know, if there's somebody who can't figure out what the basic agenda of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce is, frankly, I just believe they weren't even voting. But, you know, I, uh, we, for other important reasons, let everybody vote. We don't put that kind of test on people. But, you know, it's not that hard to know what the Chamber of Commerce agenda is. Is it really that important that we know exactly what companies gave money to its multi, you know, many millions of dollar budget, which no company is probably, you know, uh, any kind of dominant percentage? So the problem might be a little greater when you have groups with names such as there was one group called, for example, American Commitment that ran ads in the last cycle. And people might say, well, I don't know what American Commitment is. I can't judge that message. And I, and I don't know who this candidate might be you know, thinking about or beholden to in some way. But this has been so overplayed. The estimates I've taken and calculated from the Center for Responsive Politics, one of the groups that talks constantly about dark money, is that about 7% of the spending in 2012 came from groups that did not disclose their donors, that is, the donors to those groups. And this is a decline from 2010. And it's not surprising that this is a decline from 2010 because the only groups that don't have to disclose their donors are nonprofit trade organizations, at C6 organizations, right? Unions, and you know, that's generally the member of dollars in small amounts, we don't care a whole lot, and nonprofit C4 organizations, such as the Sierra Club or the NRA, okay? And anybody who would give to these groups specifically with the idea that I want to do political activity has to realize that these groups are limited under the Internal Revenue Code to spending something, the IRS has never defined it well, but it's clearly something under half of what they do on political activity. Right? That uh, goes hand in hand with their legal status. If they do more than that, they're violating their legal status. So these groups are spending something less than that. So if you're a guy who wants to really influence an election, if you give your money to one of these groups because you don't want to have your name disclosed with the ad, you have to realize that you're essentially paying about a 50% tax on your political activity. That is, about half the money you give them will not actually be used in the campaigns that you want it used in. Now, that can be misleading, too. I mean, they might do it for other things that you like. They might run nice ads talking about the need for more deficit spending or the need to reduce the deficit or something like that outside of the context of candidates and elections. But still, if you really want to affect an election, that's not an efficient way to do it. You'd much rather give your money to a super PAC, which has to disclose all of its donors and all of its expenditures, if that's what your goal is. Panda huggers and dragon slayers, these are the blunt terms used to describe two distinctly different views on the rise of China. Justin Logan unpacked those terms and what those groups mean for U.S. relations with China at a Cato Institute Hill briefing in January. 
So two ways of thinking about China's rise that sort of if you were in a graduate seminar in international politics, people would talk about. So I have these sort of cute terms that we use in town sometimes, so forgive me because I'm normally a hater of cute terms. But the two basic schools of thought are, on the one hand, panda huggers, and on the other hand, dragon slayers. That's the articulation that I use. And some of you who've been following this issue for a long time may recall, I think it was in 2005, then I guess he was Deputy Secretary of State Robert Zellick was in Chengdu and physically hugged a panda cub, which caused a great amount of commotion here in Washington about whether this was an articulation of his view of China, that he was putting himself squarely in the panda hugger camp. So what is a panda hugger, after all? In general, people think about China, panda huggers think about China in two different ways. The first sort of way is liberal institutionalists. And so what these people think is that International institutions like the United Nations, but also different sorts of trade institutions, multilateral regional groupings, etc., pose important constraints on the way that states behave in the international system. So the crucial challenge for a liberal institutionalist is the question how to incorporate China into a series of international institutions, international legal obligations, and international norms that will head off any sorts of bad behavior that we seek to avert in the future. The second variant of panda huggers, and in general, these tend to overlap. People may take both of these views at the same time. This turns on a variation of democratic peace theory, right? And so what these panda huggers believe is a sort of interlocking set of mechanisms that will lead to a lack of security competition between the United States and China. So the first sort of link in this causal chain turns very much on trade. So it's less about international institutions and more about the trade relationship. And the trade relationship produces economic growth, which I think everybody agrees on in China. And that economic growth produces a growing middle class in China. So people move from sort of subsistence agriculture and move into what could be loosely coined a middle class. Growing middle classes, the theory goes, tend to demand more, greater political rights political reforms, and even voice in choosing their own government. And those demands over time produce democracy, or perhaps not democracy, but a more democratic, more liberal regime. That more democratic, more liberal regime, as the theory goes, then plugs into a crude version of democratic peace theory. I should say in, in, in defense of democratic peace theorists, this is again a quite dumbed down variation of their theory. But the idea goes that as China becomes more democratic and more liberal, there will be some pleasant harmony between American security demands and Chinese security demands. This isn't very well articulated, whether China sort of makes its peace with American military domination of the Asia-Pacific region, or whether there comes to be some condominium of powers, or what precisely happens. But this produces, again, a general harmony comity and peace, averting security competition in the future. Then lumbering up ominously come the dragon slayers. And these people in academic terms have a very, very sort of parsimonious theory. And the story is basically that if China's economic growth continues, U.S.-China relations are headed for big trouble. And it doesn't ascribe much predictive power to democracy or to international institutions or even to the profound economic relationship. If China becomes more powerful in this view, 
It's going to try to achieve regional hegemony in Asia, the same as any other country situated as China would be situated would do. And it would do so for sound strategic reasons, not because it's wicked, not because it's imperial, not because it's sort of a reemergence of a sort of Hitler-esque state, but rather because that's the best way for China to produce security for itself. At the same time, for sound strategic reasons, the United States would try to prevent that from happening. It would ring China with an array of hostile alliances. It would conceivably cut off or circumscribe economic relations with China in an effort to strangle Chinese economic growth. This is a grim, tragic view of international politics, but it's one that's out there. So you have these two very starkly drawn schools of thought in sort of political theory terms, in the academy, but how does that matter in Washington? Am I just prattling on here about what some Tweedy academics are talking about? No. U.S.-China policy combines these two views in important ways. So very rarely do you find a card-carrying dragon slayer or panda hugger in Washington. Everyone is some amalgam of the two different theories. So if we don't have dragon slayers, we don't have panda huggers, what do we have? Well, foreign policy people are always fond of making up ridiculous terms, and today will be no exception to the rule. Interestingly, there was a paper, Zalmay Khalilzad, before he became a diplomat working in Iraq and in Afghanistan in the last 10 years, was a scholar at the RAND Corporation. And he, with a team of other scholars, wrote an article titled, Congage China. Right, so what is Congage? It's containment and engagement. That's what we need to do. We need to contain China militarily, and we need to engage China economically. And as I argue in the paper, that for all intents and purposes has been America's security policy, or America's foreign policy, really, toward China for decades now. So bringing this sort of engagement school, this hybrid view of China, into the context of U.S.-China policy and into the context of the pivot to Asia what do my sort of criticisms of these ideas lead you to believe about this policy? The first is that there's a, an essential contradiction at the core of engaging China, containing China and engaging China. And that's simply that the one aspect of the policy makes the other aspect of the policy more difficult. So you will hear people in towns say that this is just a hedging strategy, right? We're investing in China. We have a lot of interest in Chinese economic growth. But just in case things don't go as our causal mechanism, you know, the middle class, the democracy, the peace and reconciliation, binding up China and international institutions such that they can't act out too dramatically, we're going to put a lot of military effort into ringing in China and circumscribing its ability to act out militarily in Asia. Except it's not a hedging strategy, because the more you engage China, the harder it becomes to contain China, and I think Dan would be the first to tell you, the more you contain China, the harder it becomes to engage China. One aspect of the policy works entirely at cross-purposes with the other, which is not what hedging means. Public schools are decidedly not a part of voluntary society. The solutions to disagreements within public schools are implemented by a central authority. But these solutions rarely satisfy everyone and often introduce more strife among different groups. Neil McCluskey addressed social cohesion in schools at a Cato Policy Forum in January. 
So let's start with that assumption that public or government-run schooling would unite us. This has clearly been a long-term message. It started with, well, even before Horace Mann, but in this country we think of Horace Mann first, then John Dewey, and the modern-day uh, Amy Gutman or, or Al Shanker. This idea that if we have these government schools, that they'll sort of bring together, first of all, physically, in many cases, diverse people who otherwise would be separate. It would also bring them together to kind of hash out their differences because they have this common institution they're trying to run. It would also teach them common norms. So when we talk about what it means to be American, that the public schools would do this. These would be the ways that we teach the next generation what it is that makes us an American society. And it would also kind of concretely teach us about our institutions, you know, Congress and serving on juries and all these other things that go into our civic responsibilities. But this isn't how public schooling has worked in practice. For one thing, for much of our history, public schools were controlled by, generally speaking, small communities, and people tended to live with people a lot like themselves. So these schools were serving very homogeneous communities, for the most part. Like everyone, I'm going to talk sort of in generalities, there are always differences here, but it's a big topic and we obviously can't teach, treat every small difference. So in general, this was the case. And of course, for much of our history, we didn't allow African-Americans to get any education. And when we finally said they could, we said, you have to be in your own schools. So in a humongous way, tremendous way, we failed, the public schools failed in doing what we've sort of been brought up to believe is what they did. And this is not restricted only to African-Americans in areas where there are large Hispanic populations or Asian populations. We saw similar segregation. So at the thing that the schools were supposed to be doing, they, in many cases, we punted. Now, when we did allow large minorities, groups, in the public schools, there was often divisive conflict. Where we saw allowing minorities to at least have access to public schools was religion, most notably Roman Catholics. And for much of our history, the public schools were de facto Protestant institutions. And they did a very poor job of providing what Roman Catholics wanted. And, and most people have never heard of, unless they've been to Cato before, the Philadelphia Bible riots in 1844, where essentially there was two waves of warfare over whose version of the Bible, if any, would be taught in the Philadelphia public schools. Would it be Protestant? Would it be Roman Catholic? Would it be any version? By the time this was over, you had tens of people dead, hundreds of people wounded, millions of dollars of property damage, hmm. ultimately arguing about what would these schools that were supposed to serve everyone do. And so what's <coughs> the solution to these kind of problems been? Well, if you look at either at the U.S. or abroad, it's often to let people have their own educational choices. Most European countries have more school choice than we do. Often it's delivered by subsidizing religious schools as well as non-religious schools. In Belgium and the Netherlands, they had these kind of school wars that we had. And so they released all the pressure for conflict, rather than say, well, we're gonna keep trying to have everybody have this one best system of schools. In the US, a large way that the Roman Catholic disagreement and conflict was settled was Roman Catholics established their own schools. By 1965, 11% of school-aged children were going to Roman Catholic schools. So the way we brought peace, it wasn't through doing what we were told the public schools would do, bringing everybody together. It was people both here and abroad said, we've got to let people have what they want, rather than being in this zero-sum game where you have to fight your neighbor to see who's going to get the education they want for their children.
And then you can think further in our history. Absolutely, it was essential that we end forced segregation. But we did run into a lot of problems, divisive problems, when we tried to compel integration. You've got to think back, but if you think about Pontiac, Michigan, and Denver, Colorado, people literally blew up buses when they were put under orders to go to school through busing. Boston, of course, as we talked about, was a tinderbox for a very long time when busing was ordered. And today, while most people, sort of in the abstract, they express support for racial integration in the schools, when you ask them then, well, would you support having some sort of compelled busing or compelled transportation, not even close to a majority would support that. They say, no, I want the local schools. But if we could get integration, that would be good. Then we can go to the empirical work on race relations and attitudes. And I should start off by saying there, there are actually a lot of problems with the research that was done on intergroup relations and changing in attitudes with integration. There was usually no pretest. What were the attitudes before integration? What were the attitudes after integration? It's very difficult to decide what constitutes chosen integration versus compelled. So you might choose to move to a district that had some sort of busing or compelled integration because you valued that. So do you call that choice because you chose to go to that district or because you were in that district and had to then participate in busing, was that not chosen? These are things very hard to tease out in the research. So what I'm going to say is from research, that's very flawed. And so none of this is conclusive, as is often the case with social science. But what it actually seems to suggest was probably there wasn't a positive overall effect on interracial attitudes. And if anything, it might have been negative, might have been. Again, very hard to tease out how much of this is compelled, what choice, what are the attitudes going into this. But there is, and I'm going to talk about this in a second when I get part two, there was one important caveat, actually, when you look at the research that's fairly consistent, where it showed where integration did lead to greatly improved interracial contact and psychological bonds. I won't belabor this point, but today you can see across public schooling constant conflict. In fact, we have a map that we're populating where you can find it in every state in the, in the union. But you can just read your newspaper. I mean, you think about, you see battles over creationism and evolution taught in the schools in state after state after state. Conflicts about sex education, speech rights of students. What books are in the curriculum? What books are on the bookshelves of the school library? We're constantly seeing people in battles, and that's just values kind of issues. There's also, you know, what year do you teach algebra? Is it eighth graders? Is it ninth graders? Do you use phonics? Do you hold language? It's because we all have different opinions on things, different values. Research is inconclusive on lots of different matters, and we're forced to fight about them when we have this one system we all have to pay into, but only those with the most political power ultimately control. In the aftermath of the tragedy in Newtown, Connecticut, firearm regulation has understandably moved to the forefront of our national political debate. Even before Newtown, the tragic mass shootings in Arizona and Colorado and the botched Operation Fast and Furious had kept gun regulation on the front burner. Craig Whitney is author of Living with Guns, a liberal's case for the Second Amendment. He spoke at the Cato Institute in January. For most of the last three decades of the 20th century, as you heard, I was a foreign correspondent. And often I would be asked in one or another country where I was after one of our mass shooting atrocities, why 
such things kept happening and why we Americans needed so many guns anyway. And I would, you know, attempt to give an answer, but I realized I didn't really know myself. And I began to think about the idea of doing research into the history of the Second Amendment when I had time. And the result, after I retired three years ago, turned into this book. And I found, doing the research, things that surprised me. Maybe they shouldn't have surprised me, but, you know, you learn a lot of things when you're in school, and then you forget them. One was that the colonists had always had the right to keep and bear arms right from the start in Jamestown for hunting, for self-defense, and for defense against attacks by Native Americans, who uh, soon found that these visitors were intending to stay a long time and take away their lands. That right was connected with the duty to serve in militia, to come to the common defense, in other words, not just for self-defense. You didn't have to be a militia member to have a gun, but if you had a gun, you had to be ready to serve in the militia. And they regulated the weapons. Uh, many mil militias in New England and elsewhere, uh, of course, the uh, local authorities who ran them had lists of names and of the guns that the uh, people who had the guns had. They needed to know that in order to know, you know what kind of a militia force could they bring to bear at any point when Indians attacked, or the British did, or the French, or whoever happened to be uh, causing a need for, for community defense. And the facility and, and, and the uh, familiarity that Americans had with firearms uh, won us the Revolutionary War, I think. We wouldn't have a United States of America if it hadn't been for Americans' familiarity and facility with firearms. But the right that we have always had has always been subject to regulation. And after independence, it continued to be. Uh, it came as a surprise to me to find that Western towns in 19th century, like Dodge City, required visitors to leave their guns at the edge of town or with the sheriff. The carrying of firearms strictly prohibited a hand-lettered sign in the main street of Dodge City proclaimed. You can see it in a photograph in Adam Winkler's fine book, uh, Gunfight. Concealed carry was banned in Louisiana, Kentucky, Indiana, Tennessee, Virginia, and Alabama in the early 19th century. Concealed carrying was seen as cowardly. Real men didn't conceal their weapons. They wore them openly. How times have changed. The laws, of course, also changed, have also changed since then. We now have concealed carry laws going the other way in many states laws that were adapted because of the fear of violent crime, which was a scourge between the late 1960s and the late 1980s, undeniably. It's still with us today, of course, but it's dramatically down. The NRA is still, though, scaring people to death with the idea that it's so bad out there that you must have a firearm with you to protect yourself because the police aren't always around. When people like me point out that violent crime is way down, the NRA says that's because criminals don't know which members of the general public might be packing heat, so they lay off assaults. No scientifically accurate study has been done to show convincingly a cause and effect, carrying guns, lower crime rates. There are people who argue that, but I, I haven't seen a, a really good scientific study that proves it. I think somebody ought to do one. 
seriously. On the other side, people like Mayor Michael Bloomberg in New York City, where I live, say that strict gun control laws uh, <clears throat> that keep people like me from buying and owning guns are the reason for the decline in gun violence in New York City in recent years. And I, I just don't understand that. I keep pointing out that the people who perpetrate gun violence are not the law-abiding people who would apply for a license and try to get permission to have a gun in New York City and mostly are denied because the police say you don't have a good convincing reason to need one. Those aren't the people who are involved in the street shootings that keep happening in New York City, even though there are fewer of those now than there were 20 years ago. But they're mostly uh, people using illegal guns and, and even community guns, guns illegally owned, guns that are stashed somewhere uh, where anybody who knows where they are can get them and use them illegally. Keeping guns out of the hands of people who should not have access to them, who everybody agrees should not have access to them, that should be the aim of all gun control laws, not keeping guns out of the hands of as many law-abiding people as possible. There are plenty of loopholes uh, in existing legislation, as Mayor Bloomberg keeps saying, that I think should be tightened up. And first of all, first of them, I would suggest, is the one that exempts as, as many as 40% of all gun purchases from the requirement to, for the buyer's names to be cleared by the FBI's NICS system, the so-called gun show loophole that exempts private sales, not just at gun shows, but all private sales of firearms. Anybody who buys a gun privately from a private owner doesn't have to go through the background check, and that really ought to be an urgent priority, closing that loophole. It's one of the ways that uh, so many people who use guns criminally in the streets of New York, Chicago, and other big cities manage to get hold of guns. Another way is straw purchasing, which ought to be severely punishable and rigorously prosecuted. It hasn't been. Most gun violence in big cities is committed with handguns, not rifles, and whatever new gun control measures are proposed or discussed after Newtown should concentrate mainly, I think, on what can be done to make possession and carrying of so many handguns safer, not just concentrate on so-called assault rifles. They do, assault rifles, figure disproportionately in mass shootings like Newtown, and in confrontations with law enforcement. Past federal gun control laws, federal ones, have come about with difficulty, and any federal laws that come out of Newtown will also, I think, have a difficult time before they're passed. In the past, it came after a public revulsion over violence reached a peak. In 1968, we got a uh, law, the gun control law, after the assassinations of Martin Luther King and uh, Robert Kennedy, for example. And the question now is, is Newtown 2012 a moment like 1968? At the same event, Alan Gura, who argued the landmark Heller Second Amendment case, responded to the findings within Living With Guns and provided some of his own experiences in the ongoing struggle for the right to keep and bear arms. This book chastises both sides of the gun debate 
And I think it does a very good job of that. And I'd like to reflect upon that and bring into view some of my own experiences and perspective in this. Anti-gun rights people, for lack of a better term, do need to come to terms with the fact that gun ownership, gun rights are a feature of American culture. And at the same time, the people who are what we would call pro-gun rights probably need to stop acting like the other side's caricatures of who they are. When we were litigating the, the Heller case, one of the things that I found most surprising was the media's fascination with my co-counsel, Robert Levy, the chairman of the Cato Institute. Bob had made some comments to the effect that even though he was organizing this great gun rights case, he personally had no need for and no use for a firearm. He felt secure in his community, and he was simply litigating this because he believed in the issue as someone who's committed to freedom. And the press just thought this was the strangest thing in the world. Why would you want gun rights if you're not personally invested in, in gun ownership? Now, let's step back and think about this kind of question and this kind of fascination. Currently, Ted Olson and David Boyce, two very accomplished attorneys, are doing a lot of great work on behalf of marriage equality, trying to get greater recognition for marriage by gay people. I don't believe that any respectable person would interview Ted Olson or David Boyes and ask them if they are motivated in their property work by desire to marry each other or anything like that. And of course, there are people out there who are gay who support abortion rights. None of them are usually asked, you know, why do you care about abortion rights? Uh, you probably aren't going to be involved in an abortion. But the fact of the matter is that if you're at the newsroom in the Washington Post or other such liberal media establishments, gay marriage is much more acceptable than is gun ownership. It is probably safe to be out and open as a gay person in some of these media communities, whereas if you go out and declare yourself to be a gun owner, that could probably be taken somewhat more dimly. That's just where we are in America. We have a large swath of the population that does not personally use or feel the need to use firearms, and so guns have become, for these people, something of an exotic, unusual aspect of life. And of course, if something is exotic or unusual and you feel like you have no need for it personally, then any risk, however minimal in this aspect, is just fine. It justifies prohibiting and banning everything. No gun law could be excessive because it doesn't, of course, impact what you yourself personally wish to do. And so we do have a broad a part of society that may not be familiar with firearms, doesn't feel connected to firearms, yet these people aren't necessarily reflexively hostile to guns. I think many people in the country want to know why it is that their neighbors, so many of their neighbors, feel passionately about this issue. They are thirsting for helpful, calming information about guns and gun owners, and they are legitimately interested in understanding this debate. And unfortunately, I don't know that the NRA, for example, is the leading brand in the gun rights world, did itself any great services in addressing this broad national audience and in giving them any sort of help in the wake of this horrific tragedy that we saw in Connecticut. Instead, after a seven-day wait, which itself became something of an issue, the NRA chose to address its hardest core members. They spoke to their mailing list rather than to the broad national audience that was tuned into that press conference. And that was a fantastic and stupefying mistake. NRA not only passed up a chance to build support for its views, I think it did a lot of damage to itself 
and the cause that it purports to advance. Now, in fairness, let's start by recognizing that many hardcore NRA members and other people who support gun rights legitimately feel that they are somewhat besieged. These people are horrified, as everyone else is, by the mass shootings that we're seeing. And on top of that, the media culture says that they're all the next psycho killer, that their hobbies and their passions enable mass murder. Yesterday, uh, just yesterday, we saw Gawker publish a list of New York City gun owners calling them an epithet that I'm not going to repeat here. And predictably, this type of drumbeat leads to a wagon circling, rally around the leader type reaction, (coughs) which might feel good to the hardcore, but it's a defeatist approach. It really does miss those huge swaths of the American population that genuinely need to understand why the NRA is concerned with various gun control proposals and why gun control solutions that, in the absence of any countervailing messaging, appear sensible, are so fiercely resisted by that lobby. So while NRA members might feel put upon, and they've probably thought, many people thought, that Wayne LaPierre surpassed Sir Lawrence Olivier delivering the St. Crispin's Day speech from Henry V, I'm going to be a tougher critic. I'm going to judge it by whether it had persuasive value to reachable people and whether it improved or hurt the image of gun ownership. It was not immediately obvious to me as I reflected on that press conference what part of that event was the most damaging and why. There are no shortage of candidates. First, there were these antiquated cultural war references to mortal combat and natural-born killers. I would posit that there are more active gamers in the U.S. than active shooters. And for all the tut-tutting Americans recoil instinctively at limiting free expression. There is a huge market for this stuff, but little evidence that it leads to any actual violence. Now, President Bob Dole, remember him? Ran against another violent movie from 1994, came out the same year as Natural Born Killers, Pulp Fiction. And we see how well that turned out for him. I guess the person we should be feeling badly for here is Quentin Tarantino. Nobody at NRA knows that he has a new movie out in the theaters (laughs) these days. But the message here is simple. Look, if you are a political movement and you are running against the popular culture, you're losing. There is really no excuse to take on the popular culture. That should lead to some, to some, uh, some reflection. This idea of turning schools into uh, security zones, armed camps, I think is, it's unhealthy. And historically, we've had gun rights. And historically, we've not taught our kids that we need to live in this security state where a TSA or uh, Officer Friendly is at the door and, and uh, enforcing everything with a firearm. This, I think, strikes a discordant note with what we've come to expect of our society. But ultimately, I think the most astonishing aspect of the NRA response in the wake of Newtown, it seems to me as though it missed the point of why it is that Americans like guns. Yes, it's true that people do get firearms because they fear crime. That's a real legitimate concern, and it's one that should be respected, and it should not be discounted. Firearms do improve the quality of life for people who feel safer, knowing that they have the ability to defend themselves in neighborhoods where the police are not going to do it. But civilian gun ownership in the United States symbolizes something a little bit different. It symbolizes freedom. We like to live in a country where individuals are entrusted with a great deal of freedom. With that comes responsibility. But if you think that every American is potentially the next uh, psycho killer, that's a fairly depressing view of individuals, and it leads to a rather un-American idea of the individual's relationship to the government. The idea of civilian gun ownership is a positive statement 
about who we are. It shows that we're not that we're paranoid or fearful, but that we trust ourselves with freedom and we trust ourselves to be responsible. And it's not a surprise to me, at least, that the same people who do want to take away your guns are also the same people that want to take away your trans fats and your large sodas and who knows what else. At the end of the day, we do need to address the issues of how it is that we have a society designed for free people, knowing that in any country of 300 million individuals, there are going to be some miscreants, there are going to be some criminals, and there are going to be some people with serious mental illness who should not be allowed not just access to firearms, but probably should not be walking around, period. But that's the struggle that our society is always dealing with. How do we balance freedom with responsibility? How do we regulate with the understanding that the country needs to remain basically respectful of core freedoms? And that's a debate that we do need to have. And I hope that this book helps us have that debate in a more constructive, intelligent fashion. This summer, the Cato Institute is once again hosting Cato University at our headquarters in the heart of Washington, D.C. Cato University is our premier educational event, and we hope you'll join us June 28th through July 2nd as we explore the ideals of liberty and the fundamental values of the American Republic. For more information, visit Cato.org. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month.